Well, um, we're also going to be showing this in London in three locations. And so I wonder if you could give a great big welcome to Chertsey, to Weybridge, and to Richmond. Fantastic. Sit down, turn to the person next to you and say, you look good today. Love that. Well, don't you, don't you love being part of a global community? It's just so great, isn't it, that we, uh, we just get to journey, do life together. I'm, I'm enjoying being down in Christchurch. I want to tell you, I hope I'm not going to make you too jealous, 27 degrees last week. Yeah, it was the place to be. See, God's favor is on the righteous. I don't know what you lot are doing up here in Auckland. But, uh, I want to speak to you uh, this morning about a subject that's really dear to my heart and something that I've journeyed with and wrestled with for many, many years as a leader. Um, you know, it says this in, in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 18.12, it says, Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty. That means a little bit puffed up, proud, full of yourself. You ever met anyone like that? If you've never met anyone like that, just look in the mirror tomorrow. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, before destruction, the heart of man is haughty. And before honor is humility. Uh, I really want to speak, my subject today is the road towards honor. The road towards honor. And it is paved with humility. Uh, I, I guess there's probably no other subject that that really cuts at the heart of human nature than the subject of humility. I want to read to you a text from Philippians chapter 2, and uh, I sort of want to unpack this a little bit and perhaps share a little bit of my journey. But I, I, I just believe that in the culture that we live in today, it's really defined as a culture of abuse. The culture of the world is a culture of of abuse, all the things that are happening in Hollywood, the things that are coming to light now, things that happened 30 years, a whole culture of abuse. Sometimes it's, it's the abuse of power, sometimes it's sexual abuse, sometimes it's verbal abuse, but, but our culture today, more than at any other time, is defined as a culture of abuse. And, and people, that has a particular impact on people in terms of their sense of identity, their sense of self-worth. Uh, their sense of uh, personhood, you know, and, and when people say to me, you know, it's interesting when I talk to young adults about the whole issue of sex, let, let me just say this, if sex is only about sex, why do abused people feel so damaged for years upon years upon years? Because it's never just about a physical act, it, it touches on personhood. And, and so what I want to do is just sort of read some scriptures to you and, and just talk to you about the nature of God, the heart of God. Because when we're born again, something happens on the inside. We're changed on the inside. There's meant to be a transformation that takes place. And uh, the idea is that we become more conformed to the image of Christ in Romans chapter 12. We, we're transformed by the renewing of our mind, but we come more and more like Jesus. That's the idea. But it all begins with inner transformation. It's all about inner attitude, inner thought life. That's where it all starts. So in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, take a look at this. Let nothing be done 
through selfish ambition or conceit. Now, this is Paul speaking. Now remember in chapter 1 of Philippians 1, he said there's a whole group of leaders. Some preach Christ out of envy and strife and some out of goodwill. So, so even in ministry, you can do the right thing with the wrong motivation. You're aware of that, yeah? So you can still do the right thing, but the wrong motivation. And Paul says here, just check your own heart. What's driving you? Is it selfish ambition or conceit? He says, but in lowliness of mind. Everyone say lowliness of mind. mind. You see, that's humility. Lowliness of mind. Um, Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, here's the thing. It doesn't say, just look out for everyone else's interests. If you do that, you end up becoming a doormat. But what Paul is saying is, draw a bigger circle around your life. If your circle is so small that the only thing you think about is yourself and how you're going to do in life and how you're going to progress and what's advantageous to you, your world is very small. Paul says, draw a bigger circle so that you not only look out for your own interests, but you look out for the interests of others. Got that? That's a big circle. Listen, I didn't know how selfish I was till I got married. Anyone know what I'm talking about? You discover when you get married how selfish you really are because for the first time, there's someone else who places a demand on you that perhaps you're not used to. And then if you're married, wait till you have kids. You get another demand that's placed on you. You don't realize how selfish you are. Sometimes I meet young couples, you know, and uh, particularly if they are looking forward to having kids, but they've sort of been married five, six, seven years, no kids. And it's like, you know, you don't realize how good you've got it. You know, what should we do tonight? Anything we like. Wait till you have kids. You know, once you have kids, what should we do tonight? Recover. (laughs) You see, the idea of family is that you draw a bigger circle, but God doesn't just want you to consider your spouse or your kids. He wants you to take in a much bigger circle of church family and, and ultimately the city. It has to be a bigger circle. So Paul says here, don't just look out for yourself, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, Jesus came with a particular attitude. He said, I want you to have the same attitude of Jesus. And here's what it says. Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Just pause there for a moment. Do you realize that the Lord Jesus Christ, as he stood face to face with his father, he could make this statement, we are equal, and and take nothing away from the glory, the honor, the majesty, and the supremacy of who God was. He was stealing nothing by saying that. For you and I to steal that, we'd be robbing God of something but not Jesus. He didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. Here he was, equal with God the Father, but that's not the important bit. The important bit is the next verse. 
but he made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant. So here's this Jesus who's, who's equal with God the Father, but when it comes to coming into the world and mixing with you and I, he comes in the form of a servant, a bondservant. Now this is really important to grab, grab a hold of because in every area of society, one of the reasons there is abuse in society is because there are power differentials. And every place you feel or you witness a power differential, there's somebody who has power and somebody who has less power. So, you know, if you're a teacher, you have more power than the student. If you're a general, you have more power than the soldier. If you're a doctor, you have more power than the patient. If you are a prime minister, you have more power than the people. Power differentials exist everywhere in society. But the important thing is, what do those people in power do with their power? So here is Jesus, who has all power, all authority. He has everything, but he chooses to become a servant. Come on. I mean, how secure do you need to be to do that? He put aside his glory. He laid it all aside. And he became a bondservant. It was a choice that he made. Do you know when you go to a rock concert and you see somebody who's really famous, anybody know what I'm talking about? Listen, when I was 15 years of age, they were the cheap seats. If you went to a concert, I remember going to see Pink Floyd at the Royal Albert Hall. I know. You can touch me later. I was 15 years of age. Royal Albert Hall, those were the cheap seats, Royal Albert Hall, these were the expensive seats. Uh, and I remember at the end of that concert, jumping up on stage, of course, when I was 15, that's like 100 years ago, <laughs> when you didn't have security. So I remember jumping up on stage, you know, Roger Waters was there and some of the other guys and just managed to steal a pair of drumsticks and <laughs> confession time. Got a plectrum. But I was in awe at 15, Pink Floyd. I was just in awe. You know, two years later, they brought out Dark Side of the Moon. How many of you heard that album? Just in awe. Every, and it's like, whenever you're around somebody who is just one of your heroes in life, have you noticed how tongue-tied you get? You just become like an idiot. Have you noticed that? You ever been around somebody famous and it's like, ah, like you want to say something but nothing intelligent comes out? Ah, <laughs> oh, you're so-and-so. Yeah, I know who I am. <laughs> because we get awestruck. We get overwhelmed. How many of you have ever walked into an, a restaurant and a waiter has come up to you and you got awestruck? <laughs> it doesn't happen, does it? Why? Because you're the customer and they're the waiter. You have the power and they don't. You see, Jesus comes and he lays down his power and he comes as a servant because a servant isn't a threat to anybody. And so whenever Jesus, Jesus is talking to people, have you noticed people would come to Jesus and he'd, he'd ask this question, what do you want me to do for you? He makes no assumptions. Jesus said to his disciples, I'm among you as one who serves. That's the heart of Jesus, 
And that needs to be the heart of the church. That needs to be the heart of all leadership. We don't, we don't minister from a place of power. Now, now, listen, this is so misunderstood. And there's so many bad books on leadership out there. It's, it's probably about time I wrote one just to help people. But <laughs> Thank you. Let, let me just say this. When the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1, Jesus has been exalted far above principalities, powers, thrones, and dominions, and every name that can be named, and has given to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. When it says that, Jesus' headship over the church is not as most people imagine. It isn't a headship of ruling. It's a headship of loving. His, his position of authority in Ephesians 1 his position is over principalities and powers. Positional leadership is there to deal with the enemy, not to deal with the church. In Ephesians 5, headship in the church looks like this. He loved the church and gave himself for it. Leadership in the church is meant to be a servant leadership. But leadership outside over the enemy is a positional leadership. We're the head, we're not the tail. We're above, we're not below. He's under our feet. We have to exercise our positional authority in Christ in order to defeat the enemy. But in the church, we're all called to serve. Do you get that? It's so important. I, I get worried sometimes when I hear some leaders talking. It's like... Where are you coming from? Keep telling me about your position. Listen, an appeal to positional leadership is the weakest form of leadership you can ever appeal to. People sometimes, oh, I'm the, I'm the senior pastor. You know, I never play that card. I've heard some people, oh, I'm the elder, I'm the trustee. You don't have to play that card when you have a strong argument. You see, when you play those kinds of cards, what you do is you shut down dialogue. You're basically saying to people, I'm in charge, shut up. But if you want to invite dialogue, what we need to do is we need to have a tender heart and a strong argument. We need to facilitate dialogue. Uh, Jesus did this all the time. He took the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of man and being found in appearance as a man, listen to this, he humbled himself. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. This Jesus of ours, he chooses humility in order to win, to serve, and to redeem humanity. And when James and John thought it was all about positional leadership, can we sit at your right hand and at your left when you come in your kingdom? Jesus said, well, hang on a minute. Can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? And they say, yes. <laughs> Don't you love that? Yeah. It's like, you dumb idiots. They <laughs> go, yeah, yeah, we can do that. And Jesus is so gracious. He goes, yeah, okay, you will one day. But not today. If you want to be great in the kingdom, you need to become the servant of all. If you make it your ambition in life to serve people where they are, what happens is you come under them and you're able to lift them and empower them to do better in life. That's what the essence of leadership is. That's the essence of the church. I love it that you have a heart week in this community. I love that. 
I love that there are all kinds of projects that are going on because what we're really saying to the church in this, to the city through this church is we love you and we're here to serve you and bless you. And people say, why are you doing that? Well, because Jesus did that for us. He came, he served, he gave his life for us. We want to do that for our city. That's the agenda. The agenda is we want to love you. We want to bless you. We want to lift you up. Being found, he became obedient to the point of death. You know what? Eugene Peterson made this statement one time. He says this, the Christian life is all about a steady obedience in the same direction. Isn't that beautiful? A steady obedience in the same direction. You see, Jesus became obedient to the point of death. Sometimes we think that humility is about an act of obedience, but it's about an attitude. It's not just about one step of obedience, it's about the next step. You're as humble as the last step of obedience you ever took. Because every day you're going to be challenged to take new steps. And the issue is not what did you do yesterday or last week or last year that demonstrated your humility. What are you prepared to do today that demonstrates your humility? You see, Jesus went on a journey where his humility took him to the cross and he came to a point of crisis. In John chapter 12, he makes this statement. Now is my soul trouble. What shall I say? Father, deliver me from this hour. That's one thing he could say. But he says, Father, glorify your name. He's got a, he's got a conflict in his heart of two paths that he could choose. His own path or the path of the Father. Deliver me from this hour because of what he's about to face or Father, glorify your name. Jesus makes a choice. He humbles himself and he makes a choice. Friends, I want to encourage you today. Come on. You lose nothing by choosing the path of humility. But you gain everything. You see, before honor is humility. <clears throat> Even the death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Before honor is humility. Before Jesus is exalted, he's humbled and obedient, even to the point of death on the cross. In your life, I believe, and in my life, God has challenged us to take a path of humility that often means it looks like we fail. It, it looks like it's not working out. It's, it's looks, it looks, other people look at our life and they say, hang on a minute, what went wrong? Because God has a day when he chooses to honor. You see, if you had met David in the cave of Adullam, you'd have looked at him and you said, well, what went wrong? What did you do wrong? Here you are, you were in the palace. You were, you were on the fast track. You were the king's son-in-law. Come on, you are the anointed ones. Didn't Samuel prophesy over you greatness? Didn't he prophesy over you be king of Israel? You're living in a cave now with 300 discontented men. Who wants to do that? You see, if you'd met David in that part of his journey, his life would have looked like a failure. If you'd met Joseph when he was down in the dungeon, his life would have looked like a failure in that moment of time. 
But you know, here's Jesus. He, he, he becomes a man. He becomes a servant. He becomes obedient unto death. Wherefore, God has highly exalted him. It's like the life of Joseph. He goes down into the pit with his brothers. Then he goes down into Egypt. And then he goes down into the dungeon. And then he gets exalted to be to the right hand of Pharaoh. Before honor is humility. The road to honor is paved with steps of humility. And humility is always about our obedience to Christ. Huh. It's at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth. You know, the word for humility in the Hebrew, it's a very interesting word. It's the word anava. In Proverbs, it's trans translated as humility. In two other places in the Bible, it's translated as the word gentleness and the word meekness. Now you think about that. You think about Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight when he says, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. One translation says, I am gentle and lowly of heart. Isn't that beautiful? This Jesus that we love, that we serve, in his heart, he's gentle. I love the way J.B. Uh, Phillips says that, and, and Eugene Peterson, they say, hey, are you stressed out from religion? Are you stressed out? Are you feeling abused? We need to come to Jesus. He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Learn from me. You'll find rest for your soul. You know, in, uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 22, David is writing a psalm to the Lord. Here's what he says. Verse 33, God is my strength and power. He makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer and sets me on high places. He teaches my hands to war. My arms can bend a bow of bronze. You've also given me the shield of your salvation. And then he says these words, your gentleness has made me great. That's the same Hebrew word translated as humility. We could say, your humility has made me great. Of all the attributes of God that David could have claimed his greatness from, he didn't say, your power has made me great. He didn't say, your omniscience has made me great. He didn't say, your foreknowledge has made me great. He, he didn't use any of those attributes of God. He said, your gentleness has made me great. Don't you love it? That it says in the scripture, a bruised reed he shall not break, and a smoking flax he won't quench, he won't put out. That's the gentleness of God. You know, in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 1, Paul talks about people who've been overtaken in a fault. Other Christians, they're not doing well in life. Somehow life has overtaken them, and they've ended up making bad choices. He says, you who are spiritual, restore that person in a spirit of gentleness. One translation says a spirit of meekness. Considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Do you hear the humility in that? That if I'm going to help another person, I mustn't come from above them looking down saying, well, you failed. Poor you. I must come from below saying, oh man, that could have been me. What can I do to serve you? What can I do to help you? How can I strengthen your hands? It's that kind of gentleness. And David says, your gentleness has made me great. Because when he screwed up, he didn't need a heavy hand. He needed an upholding hand. He needed a strong hand that would just restore him. 
And he says, it's your humility, God. That's what draws me. Jesus said, come to me. I'm meek and lowly of heart. The heart of God is a humble heart. He's not there to rule over you. He's there to help you be who he's called you to be. I don't know about you, but that makes me want to fall in love with God all over again. Humility is always about choosing to forego your rights for a greater good. It requires vision to be a humble person because you're able to see what's ahead when no one else can. It requires endurance to handle pressure. It requires inner security to handle the judgment and criticism of others when you make those kinds of choices. It requires trust in the face of impending personal loss. It requires faith to believe God will bring about his justice without you manipulating it. That's humility. Humble people, I find, are easy to talk to. Do you find that? They're just easy to talk to. Nothing to prove. Humble people have a servant heart. Humble people don't have a chip on their shoulder as though the life owes them something. Have you met those kinds of people? They're just angry. But they they can be polite with their anger. It's like, life owes me something. No, it doesn't. Get over yourself. Make a humble choice. Humble people are not intimidated by greatness and they're not embarrassed by poverty. They, They treat them the same. Humble people know how to live in the moment of life without wishing they were somewhere else. Have you learned to live in the moment? It's so funny, you know, um, you may know that I have five daughters. One of the things, one of the privileges I have as a father of five daughters is that from time to time they'll take me out on a date, which is great, especially when they pay. And it's, and it's really funny, sometimes we'll, we'll, we'll go out on a date and we'll, we'll just be there talking. And here's what I've discovered about women. Boys, guys, I'm really going to help you today. <laughs> a woman needs to talk for an hour before she knows what she needs to say. <laughs> when a woman is upset and you ask her what's wrong, she will generally look at you and say, I don't know. And you want an answer. You're a guy. You want an answer because you want to fix it. That's not how women think. They intuitively know when something's wrong. They don't yet have language to describe what they feel intuitively in their spirit. So what they need to do, unlike a man, is they need to talk. And eventually, in the process of talking, they suddenly realize what the issue is. And you're sitting there thinking, why the heck didn't you say that 50 minutes ago? (laughs) Well, they didn't know it 50 minutes ago. So a humble guy will be be a guy who learns how to listen. Hello? How many of you know that I needed to learn that? That's that's why I have five daughters and one son. With a son, it's easy. What's the problem? It's this, Dad. Great. Here's a plan. Let's fix it. Women aren't like that. And so I've had to learn to be in the moment. Do you know I have a rule now when I go out on a date with my daughters? I just put my phone on flight mode or something like that. Phones are off the table when we spend time together. I find people go out, I can't believe it. You, 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 you arrange an evening to go out with a friend and you're both on phones all the time. What's that all about? 
you've lost the art of being in the moment. You, you think like you're missing out on something, so you have to be on Instagram, Facebook, or capture that moment. No, you don't need to do that. Just be in the moment that you're in with that person. That, humble people know how to do that. <laughs> Humility is revealed when we share the glory of our achievements with those who serve alongside us. Humble people don't boast. If they boast, they boast about the success of others, not their own successes. Again, we live in a culture. That, this is counterintuitive in our culture. Everyone wants to tell you how great they are. You don't believe that? Just look at uh, X Factor. Everyone tells you how great they are. And then you hear them sing, and it's like, who deceived you? <laughs> Your mother's been lying to you. <laughs> and then sometimes, sometimes somebody comes up on X Factor, and you know, like they're really insecure, and they're really shy, and then they sing like an angel. You think, oh my goodness, where did you come from? See, humble people don't have to prove anything like that. Humility is revealed when we're able to laugh at ourselves. You know, my kids. They love to tell stories about me. It's very embarrassing. <laughs> really embarrassing. Bruce loves it when he can spend time with my girls because they've got loads of stories. But, uh, but I've done enough things in my life just to completely embarrass myself all over the place. And I'm not going to tell you any of them. <laughs> all right, I'll tell you one. <laughs> it's so funny, you know, um, the, a number of years ago, we had a, I had a daughter who was just, she's one of the cheeky daughters. Her name's Anna Marie. She's one of the most cheeky. We call them lippy. Do you have that expression here? A lippy kid. Just knows how to answer back all the time. And on this particular occasion, I think she was about 12 or 13 at the time, she was being really lippy with me. And I lost it. And any dads here know what I'm talking about when you say you, you lose it? Yeah? Oh, come on. No one's putting their hands up. Okay. God sees your heart. <laughs> I can see you in the second row there in Weybridge. Yeah. Okay. So she'd been lippy and I shouted at her and she ran upstairs all upset. And my wife looked at me. You know the wife look? Guys, you know what I'm talking about? The wife look? Well, you're in trouble. You've got to put it right. And she said to me, you know you need to make that right. I said, yeah, let me just calm down. I'll just calm down then I'll go off and I'll make it right. So I waited about five or ten minutes just to, you know, let the temperature go down. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> so about ten minutes later, I went upstairs. And I, I, now, just remember, I'm posturing myself to be a humble father right now and apologize to my 12-year-old daughter, yeah? That's good, isn't it? Yeah? So I knock on the door. She keeps me waiting. How do you know the temperature's already going up again? I can feel it, you know? So I knock again, she keeps me waiting, and then, you know, and I'm thinking, this is not right. And then eventually the door opens, and I'm just about to say, darling, I'm so sorry for the way I reacted earlier on. And she looks at me and she said, like this. <laughs> Hand goes up. She said, Dad, before you say anything, I'd like to say something. I say, yeah, what, what is it you want to say? She said, I know that what I did was wrong, but did you respond in the most mature way possible? <laughs> How will you know a 12-year-old's not supposed to think like that? Never mind talk like that. 
Uh, I looked at her and I thought, oh my goodness, I'm getting dressed down by a 12-year-old. <laughs> I said, no, darling, you're absolutely right. I did not react in the most mature way possible. And then she looked at me and she said, do you feel like you've learned a very important lesson from this experience? <laughs> It's like to wipe the floor with me. I said, yes, I've learned a very important lesson. Thank you so much. She goes, that's okay, Daddy. I forgive you. Gave me a big hug. You, you've got to learn to laugh at yourself. You know, if you're always positioning yourself to be the person who knows everything, is in charge, in control, got everything, you know, under wraps, you know, you're not living in the real world. The real world is, is that, like the Apostle Paul, sometimes we're pressed beyond measure. Sometimes we're cast down, but we're not cast, knocked out. You know, sometimes outwardly there are pressures, inwardly there are fears. This is Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. This is the reality of life. But if we posture ourselves to have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus, where it's not about trying to prove that we're always right or we're always successful or we're always this or always that, but rather we're there to bless to serve, to know that we're loved by God, to know that we're called by God, to know that no matter what circumstances we're in, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, neither life, nor death, nor things present, nor things come, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor any other living creature can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Come on. No matter what my life looks like, God's hand is on my life. The journey isn't over. The chapter isn't finished. The book isn't complete. And sometimes in the writing of the book, there are chapters where it isn't that great. And in my own life, you know, there were chapters like that where I thought, I thought I'd done everything I could to bless God and obey God, and it got worse. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Oh, okay, well, there's me. You know, sometimes you obey God and it doesn't get better. Joseph obeyed God. He kept his integrity. He ran away from Potiphar's wife. You'd have thought, now God's really going to honor that level of obedience. And it got worse. He ended up in a dungeon. He was falsely accused. Because God is concerned about shaping your inner world. He's concerned about getting your heart like his heart. <laughs> he wants to break every vestige of pride in you so that when you are in the position of power, you're not using your pos position to rule over people, but you're using your servant heart. Do you get this? Uh, humility is revealed when we're able to rejoice at the success of others without getting jealous. If you want to know what your servant heart is like, what your hum if you've got humility in your heart, watch what happens when someone else gets a blessing you've been believing for. Hello? Do you get jealous? Or from your heart, can you really rejoice? From your heart, can you say, wow, that's amazing. I'm believing for the same thing. That inspires my faith to keep believing. Or do you say... Oh, God did it for them. He didn't do it for me. Boo-hoo-hoo. -hoo. Let's make it all about me now. Come on. Humble people demonstrate a thankful spirit. 
Have you noticed how many times? Do you know almost every public prayer of Jesus is a prayer of thanksgiving? Almost every single one. So, you know, when he took bread, when he multiplied it and fed the 5,000, it says he gave thanks. He would have done it the traditional Jewish way. Baruch atah Adonai Elohim Elech He would have just prayed a prayer of thanksgiving. Blessed art thou, Lord God of the universe, who gives us this bread from the ground. A prayer of thanksgiving, and he, and he performs a miracle. When the 70 return and say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name, Jesus says, I thank you, Father, that you've hidden these things from the wise and the prudent, for so it seemed good in your sight. You revealed it to babes, to infants. It's a prayer of thanksgiving. When he raised Lazarus from the dead, now you'd have thought this is going to be a really technically long prayer. <laughs> Resurrection. And it's, it's so short, it's embarrassing. He says, he looked up to heaven. He says, I thank you, Father, that you always hear me. But for the sake of these people, I say this, Lazarus, come forth. <laughs> See, a humble person has a thankful spirit. And Jesus, at every opportunity, he's thanking the Father. He's not complaining. He's, he's saying prayers of thanksgiving all the time. Almost every public prayer of Jesus is a thanksgiving prayer. By the way, almost every public Jesus, prayer of Jesus is less than 20 seconds long. People were complaining one time. A guy came to our church. He said, you don't pray much in your church, do you? I said, not on Sunday. But we do on Wednesday. We pray for 45 minutes every Wednesday night. You can come along on Wednesday. We pray there. Well, you should be praying on Sunday. I said, well, we do prayers of Thanksgiving on Sunday, and they're short. Well, you should make them longer. And I said, sorry. Sorry, I missed that verse. <laughs> Sorry. Where was it again? <laughs> it's amazing how much religious notion we have about what we should and shouldn't be doing. Do you know Jesus never ever criticized short prayers, but he did long prayers. Matthew chapter 6, if you need a scripture. Shortened to the point. That's Jesus. That's what we need, in, especially on Sundays where we've got lots of visitors and unchurched people. Let's make it short, 20 seconds. Because when you do something from your heart, God acknowledges it. Do you get it? You want to have a long prayer time? Go to your closet. Matthew 6, go to the Father in secret. Pray as long as you want. Fill your boots. When we're the church gathered together, midweek, when we're the church gathered together, yeah, we can pray like the apostles did in, the, in Acts chapter 4. We can do that. On Sunday, we keep it short. Just to help people, really. <laughs> Humility is revealed when we're able to help restore others who failed without judging them or thinking we're better than they are. You see, there's so many keys to humility, friends. C.S. Lewis once made this statement. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Isn't that a great quote? C.S. Lewis. Not thinking less of yourself. Humility is not putting yourself down. Humility is rather not even letting yourself be in the frame, but you have a bigger picture, you have a bigger circle, you have a bigger world. And here's what I've discovered in my life. When I choose the path of humility, eventually God will honor Eventually, God will honor. I remember one time where I came out of ministry for a season. It was a very difficult season for me. 
Uh, bearing in mind, I, I went to Bible college when I was 22. I, I, I was employed in full-time Christian work by the time I was 23. I was an associate pastor till I was 30 when I was ordained. And then by 30, I'd been a senior pastor till I was 38. So it was all I'd ever known. And then I came out of leading a church. I felt like God was telling me, no, resign. You need a season out. And when I came out, I was kind of a little lost. It was like all I'd ever known. And so for nearly a year or two, I was a swimming teacher. Hello? <laughs> it doesn't get more humble than that. People say, oh, what are you doing now? Yeah, I, I teach kids swimming. Ah. Oh. Hmm. Good for you. Not much of a future with that one. And, and I remember it took two years before God opened the door for me to go back and study. But it was, it was two years where just a swimming teacher, that was it. No responsibility. Didn't get any invitations anymore to speak anywhere. Still felt like I had a call on my life. But that was the season I was in. And, and it was a two-year period. And then I realized, looking back, that during those two years... I spent hours and hours with my kids and we reconnected and I taught two of them to become really good, really good competition swimmers. And there was a season where God allowed me just to reconnect with family in a way that the busyness of life had disconnected me. But I was still, I was still doing something. You see, I could have sat at home and done nothing. I could have, I could have sulked. I could have, well, what am I good for? Well, find something. And by the way, I, when I was a swimming teacher, I did six months of training to be a swimming teacher. I had, to, I had to train alongside, I was 38 years of age, I had to train along guys who were 22 doing bronze medallion. Really strong guys, fit. And 38, I was, a, I was more paunchy than I am now. You know the spirit of tubbiness? Comes on people around about that age. It's the sort of Winnie the Pooh anointing. You know that one? Just need a little bit more honey. <laughs> I had to work really hard to get fit again. So it was, it was good for me all around. It was good for my relationship with my family, good for my health. It was really good. And then God opened the door for me to go back to university and do a master's degree in leadership and organizational development. And I thought, God, you're calling me back to university. You know, I've got a wife, I've got six kids, I've got responsibilities. How can I do that? And a businessman came to me one day. He was the guy who suggested the program. And he said to me, I said, I don't know how I can do this. I said, it's expensive to do this program. He said, Peter, God has spoken to me, and I'm going to pay for you to do it. I'm going to pay for you to do it. I was like, yes. <laughs> yes. But during that time as a, as a swimming teacher, I learned, I learned how to have a thankful spirit. I learned how to rejoice every single day. You know, to bless God for the things that I did have. A great wife, great kids. You know, that we still had food on the table. It was at that time, by the way, there's an organization, there's a, a supermarket in, in England called Tesco. Are you aware of this? It's like sort of countdown over here. And, uh, and Tesco... Right at that time, they brought out these cheap products for people who were poor. <laughs> and so, so you could buy cans of beans, but they had red, they had blue and white stripes around the tin, and all it had on there was like beans. <laughs> and then spaghetti or, or stuff like that. And it was ridiculous. You could buy a can of beans for three cents. 
So when you were poor, these were the best things since sliced bread. But you could always tell the poor people when you went shopping, because their trolleys were full of these blue and white stripes. And it was really humbling. It was really humbling because, you know, in, in, in England, people love to go to Marks and, uh, uh, Marks and Spencer and um, Waitrose. This is where the posh people go to eat, to buy their food, Waitrose in Weybridge. You know, we've got a part of London called Weybridge, which is very salubrious, very posh. You know, sort of a lot of, there's some gated communities there. You can't even go down the road unless you get past a guard. You know, a few gated communities there. And, and they were going to open up one of these, the, these, uh, these cheap um, supermarkets. And there was a petition. <laughs> we don't want that here. But I'm so grateful for Tesco's. Because I used to load up this trolley, I'd go to the counter, and the lady would be checking all these cans through, cans of beans and spaghetti and white bread. And I'd say, how much is it? And she'd say, five pounds. <laughs> say, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> and you see, I, I just had to learn to get over myself. I had to learn to get over the fact that in that season, we didn't have much money. In that season, I didn't have a great job. I was just a swimming teacher for two years. It, it's just the season I was in. But then after I graduated from university, I got a job with a management development company. And boy, did I start to get, earn some money then. I was like, oh my goodness. And I remember, I remember you know, when we had a car, it was very humbling. I had a, a Mazda 323. It was one of these little cars, nice little red Mazda. And the kids used to laugh at the car because it was just so old and rusty. And then one day I got in it and the front door fell off. <laughs> Just a humble season in my life. I remember putting the door on. I used to have to climb through the passenger seat to get into the car. And I just used to pray if the police ever stopped me, I, I pray they never asked me to get out the car. <laughs> wind down the window. Yes, officer? And after a while, it got so bad that I, I went to a scrapyard and I found four more doors from another car that matched it perfectly. It was just one problem. My car was red and that car was silver. I thought it was really cool to have a red car with four silver doors. It was unique. There was no other car on the road like that. How many of you know teenagers do not think that's cool? When you have the only car on the road that looks a particular way and you think it's cool, they think it's weird. So do their friends. Used to have to drop them off a kilometer before the school. Just here, Dad's fine. I want the fresh air. <laughs> and then after a while, I was able to buy a brand new car. You know, my boss bought me a new car. He said, come on, let's, let's choose a new car. I remember taking the new car home, saying, kids, what do you think of this? I was like, oh, Dad, take me to school tomorrow, right to the front door. <laughs> yeah, that's my dad. That's his car. Uh, how many of you know that in the minds of, of teenagers, you know, that stuff's important to them? But, but, you know, there are seasons in life where 
you have abundance. There's a season in life where you have lack. Paul said this in Philippians chapter 4. He says, I can do all things through Christ. And he, and he was talking about that context. He says, I know how to suffer want. I know what it is to want something. And I know what it is to have abundance where I've got so much I can just bless whoever I want to. I've learned that I can do all things. You can only make that statement if your heart is positioned to know that your true treasure and your true value is in Christ and it's not in things. It's in who you are in God. It's not in what you possess. If you think it's in what you possess, then when that's taken away from you, you will feel lost. But when it's taken away and your treasure is in something else, your treasure is in God, your treasure is in heaven where rust uh, doesn't corrupt it, where thieves don't break in and steal. Come on. I believe God wants to honor us. I believe he wants to honor us in our marriages, in our families, in our church life, in our community. He wants to honor. He desires to honor. The Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 30, those who honor me, I will honor. God desires to honor us. But listen, the way that honor starts is through humility. That's the road we have to choose. Jesus chose it. No one imposed it on him. Nobody made him do it. He said, this is the way I'll change the world. This is the way I will win people. This is the way I will defeat the enemy. Wherefore God has highly exalted him. You can't have the crown and not have the cross. You can't have an exaltation without first having a humble beginning. You can't succeed and have all the acclamation until you're ready to let go. I believe if we do that, friends, if we make those choices in life, our Father in heaven is going to see our heart and in process of time, He's going to say, you know what, I can trust you. I can trust you. Because your security and your identity is not in the things that I bless you with and I surround you with and I give you. It's in who you are in me and who I've made you to be. I want you to stand to your feet. I want to pray for you. Maybe you're here this morning. You've never said yes to Jesus. I want to give you an invitation today and say this to you. This Jesus I've been speaking about is gentle. He's meek and lowly of heart. He won't rule you. He won't use you as a doormat. But you will be partnering with him and you'll learn how to do life differently. You'll learn how to do life well. You'll learn how to do relationships well. He, he says, come, come. If you're laboring and a heavy laden, if you feel like life is just heavy right now, come on. God did not give you that heaviness. He wants to give you lightness in your spirit. He wants you to know his love. He wants you to know his goodness. He wants you to know that you count. He gave himself for you and for me. And I'm presenting an invitation because Jesus presented an invitation. Come to me. It's an invitation. Come. If you're somebody who's just fed up with the stress, with the abuse, with all that goes on in life, 
And you need a savior who will deliver you from that world and restore you and help you know your true value in God. Just while heads are bowed and eyes are closed, this is a very significant moment. If you're somebody here today and you know that you need this in your life, listen, I'm going to ask you to make a response, but the truth is God sees your heart. He sees what you're crying out for on the inside. He knows what you need. But he's looking for a response. When Jesus said, follow me, the disciples, they left their nets, they followed Jesus. There was a response. When Jesus says, come to me, in your heart, he wants you to say yes and respond. If you're here today and you're ready to do that, there is nobody who's ever lived who's been more for you than Jesus. He didn't just show you how to live, he gave his life in order that you might live. He gave you complete and total forgiveness for all of your past. He offers you a brand new future and a brand new beginning. If you're ready for that, here's what I'd love you to do while heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Just lift up your hand high. You're saying, that's me. I want Jesus. I want, his, I want him in my life. I want him to be my savior. I want to be yoked to Jesus. Lift it up high. Come on. Thank you. You're saying yes to him right now. Hallelujah. Bless you, young man. God bless you. Anyone else? Come on. Just respond. Thank you. This is so great. Listen, raising your hand doesn't save you. It's what's going on in your heart. But raising your hand is saying... I'm not ashamed. I'm going to respond. I'm saying yes to Jesus. Here's what I'd love us to do. Even if you didn't raise your hand, I'd love you to say this prayer alongside with me. For every believer here, this is a simple prayer of confession. But for some people here today, this is moving from one kingdom to another kingdom. This is repositioning their heart and their life in line with Jesus. Say, Father in heaven. Thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for his death on the cross that has paid for all of my sin. Thank you for his resurrection that has secured my destiny. Today I confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and he's my Lord. Amen. I wonder if we can give God a big clap for a moment. going to do one more thing. It's not drink. I don't think I'm going to do that even. Okay. If you're here this morning, this message speaks to your heart about the path of humility. Now, every single one of us has to translate this into our own world, into our own context. The Holy Spirit is very faithful to help us do that. You know, you know what that means for you. Sometimes that, has, that means the shift in the way that you're talking to your kids. Sometimes it's the shift in the way you're talking to your spouse. Sometimes it's a shift in the way that you present yourself at work. Sometimes it's a shift in the way that you're doing ministry or serving in church. 
we all have a sense where we need to make a shift. But if you, if you know the Holy Spirit has spoken to you today, I just want to pray grace over your life that you can make that shift. Because it doesn't happen by might or by power, but by my spirit. We were singing that earlier. So all I want you to do, just as a simple act of faith, is place your hand on your heart. We're going to trust the grace of God to do something in our world. We're going to trust the grace of God to do something. Father, you see every single person in this room. You know their circumstance. You know their context. You know their world. You understand the relationships they're part of. You know where there needs to be a shift and a change. And right now in Jesus' name, I take authority over everything that's been a blockage to the path of humility. And right now, I set people free to make new choices in life, that the old patterns of behavior, the old ways of thinking, the old ways of living and making decisions will no longer rule and reign over God's people here today. But I declare in Jesus' name a new freedom. I declare in Jesus' name an authority to walk in the grace of God, to walk by the Spirit of God, to make the same choices Jesus made, to choose the path of humility that will lead to honour and blessing and exaltation. And I ask, Spirit of God, that you would just encourage your people who are in the difficult season. Lord, that there would be faith rising in their heart, that things will change in process of time, that instead of getting bitter, we're going to get better, that instead of giving up, we're going to persevere, that instead of looking at other people, we're going to look to you, we're going to look away to Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith. And I declare fruitfulness, I declare blessing, I declare prosperity, I declare advancement, I declare that your church is going to be built in this locality and nothing is going to stop it. We embrace the path of Jesus. We embrace His humility. We say you are King, you are God. Come on, let's give Him a great big clap. Let's say thank you Jesus.